So first, I want to begin with the story of Jesus' baptism. I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke in the third chapter. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the good news for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations that go through all of our minds, may they give you pleasure, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. As I said, this is a little bit different from my usual sermon. I want to walk through with you and expand the prayers that we say, the liturgy of baptism. And so I'd like to invite you to turn in your hymnal to page 50. I'm also going to do something else unusual. I'm going to ask Scott to set a timer for 15 minutes. I love this material so much I could go on for an hour. So Scott's your protection. He's going to really, really love the power he has over me with this. When I hit 15 minutes, he's going to say 15. So when you hear him do that, he's not being rude. This is what I asked him to do. And I'm very grateful for my colleague, Scott. Exactly. So beginning on page 50, I want to walk you through the meaning of this. Through the sacrament of baptism, we are initiated into Christ's holy church. That means that when we are baptized, we become part of the body of Christ. It is the entrance ritual of the Christian church. Now, people can get a little bit confused about that. Although we're part of the body of Christ, it doesn't automatically mean you're a member. So if a person is middle school age or older and he or she is baptized, automatically in baptism they join the church. But if an infant or a small child is brought for baptism, that person doesn't automatically become a member of the church. It's part of the constitution of the United Methodist Church that you can't be a member without expressing your faith yourself. And so a, a baby wouldn't be a member. But even if that baby isn't a member, they would still be part of the body of Christ, and we would still care for them as part of this church. But baptism is a sacrament of initiation into the Christian church. What does that mean? This is where we get to the really good stuff. I'm a baptism nerd. We are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. Now, this has two meanings to it, and most people are more aware of the first meaning than the second. The first meaning, incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation, means what you would expect, that God begins the process of saving you. Now, in United Methodism, we don't really believe in a flip-the-switch kind of baptism. It's not like it's done, now you can ignore God. We believe that God initiates a process. In baptism, you are saved, and in baptism, you are 
being saved. It's, it both happens and it will continue to be God's work throughout the rest of your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation, God saves us and initiates a process that will continue throughout our lives if we'll be attentive to God and partner with God in the work of the Spirit. And that's how most of us think of this incorporation work or salvation work. But the other part of the equation for me is equally important. Not only does God save us, but God equips us to save others. In baptism, we are given spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts are not talents. They're not things to make us impressive or have people look at us or admire us. Spiritual gifts are those qualities or capacities that God gives us. They're how God's going to work through us individually to save others. And there are traditional lists of spiritual gifts, and we'll be talking about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ in our next sermon series. But I want to speak in it more broadly. Your, your spiritual gift might be the way that you spend your time and, and your work life. Your spiritual gift might be being an ordained pastor or being a teacher or um, other kinds of leadership that are traditional spiritual gifts. But there are other gifts that we see, and you start seeing it in young children really quite early, gifts of compassion, of communication, of uh, reaching out to someone who's hurting. You know how very young there will often be one child who goes to comfort the kid who's crying on the playground? Even at that young age, you can see that gift of compassion or the way that some people are really good listeners. From early on, they just pay attention and they listen. And their listening is going to be part of how God is going to work through them for the rest of their lives. Or maybe they're a teacher and any chance they get, they're playing school and they're teaching other people. Or they've got leadership qualities and people just automatically want to follow them and do what they do. In the Christian church, when, when the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, it happens within a community, and we as a community make a promise that we're going to watch the person baptized, whether that's an infant or a grown adult, and watch for the way that we see God working through them, and to share that with the person, and for a child to share that with the parents, and the Sunday school teachers will watch, other people will watch, how do we see God working through this one? What spiritual gifts are we experiencing? So that when we say incorporated into the mighty acts of the Spirit, it is not only our own salvation, but we become part of the story of how God's going to save the world. And that's such a beautiful and humbling thing when we bring a baby for baptism and we think, I don't even know how God's going to use this child yet, but I know God will. And what a gift that is to be part of the community to watch and encourage that child as he or she grows into their gifts. And then the next line, and given new birth through water and the Spirit, we believe that in baptism there is new birth and that sin is washed away. Now when we baptize uh, an adult or an older adult, and they hear about the new birth and the clean slate, for most of us that is great news. I could use a clean slate. <laughs> you know, we have regrets. We have things we wish we had handled differently. And the idea of all of that washed away is really thrilling and hopeful. When you bring a baby for baptism, often this part isn't as meaningful to the parents. For some parents it is. But for most parents, that sense of washing away their sin, and you've got this cute baby there, and you think, I don't know. I mean, just it, it may not be as meaningful in that instance, 
But it's still, we do believe that original sin was cleansed from the child or cleansed from any age. And that is good news, that sense of a new start. The churchy term we use for that is regeneration. Given new birth through water and the Spirit, that fresh start that Joy was talking about. And then this last line, all this is God's gift offered to us without price. This leads to a really important part of how we understand baptism uh, in the Christian church. There are basically two primary strands of how we practice baptism. There's what we call infant baptism and there's believer baptism. The United Methodist Church practices infant baptism, as does the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the UCC, uh, Episcopalians. Many denominations practice infant baptism, which means that we baptize at any age. Other church traditions practice believer baptism, which means the child... The person must be at an age to speak for him or herself. So in believer baptism traditions, the person usually isn't baptized until later elementary school or older when the person's ready to say, yes, I choose Jesus. In the infant baptism tradition, which is our United Methodist tradition, the emphasis is on what God is doing. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. We believe that in baptism, God claims the person, God anoints them, uh, says this one is my own forever, um, gives, holy, gives uh, spiritual gifts that will be used throughout the world. We believe that it's only done once because it was God's action and God only needs to do it once. But within this infant baptism tradition, we may well reaffirm our faith, as we will have an opportunity to do today, where we reaffirm, yes, I choose Jesus again. We don't re-baptize because what God has done in baptism doesn't need to be repeated, but we reaffirm our faith. We say, yes, I claim this again. In a believer baptism tradition, the emphasis is less on what God does in the baptism and more in the choice. And that's really important. So I don't want to come across disrespectful to either tradition. Each tradition has its strengths. In the believer baptism tradition, the emphasis is on I choose. And sometimes we're not strong enough in infant baptism traditions of really emphasizing you got to choose. You got to make a decision if Jesus is going to be the Lord of your life. So in a believer baptism tradition where the emphasis is more on our own choice, you could be baptized over and over and over again as you choose Christ over and over and over again. So believer baptism traditions re-baptize, infant baptism traditions generally don't re-baptize, and United Methodists do not re-baptize. What we emphasize is what God is doing in and through the person baptized, whatever the age is. And when families bring a baby for baptism, I, I always know they're nervous. You know, there's this kind of anxiety around what will my baby do, and I want my baby to look cute, and, you know, just kind of all of this pressure. And I always say to the family, I, I know you're going to feel that, and I respect it, but from my perspective, I don't care. Your baby can pull my stole. Your baby can pull on my microphone. It can shout. They can cry. They can throw up on me. I don't care. They're still baptized. I know there's pressure to be the cute baby club, but that's not what baptism's about. It's not about our doing or our behavior. It's about God's grace. And what amazing news that we don't have to earn it. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be cute enough. God just gives this grace through baptism. It's amazingly wonderful news. 
which leads us into the next section, the vows. This is a part that uh, people are often confused by in the case of infant baptism. Some people feel when the parents come, they are making vows on behalf of the child. Those of you who have children know that you have no control over what your kids do and what your kids are going to believe. So you can't vow that your child is going to be a Christian. You just don't have control over that. You have control over how you raise the child, but you don't have control over what their decisions will be later on in life. And so we don't believe that the parents are making vows on behalf of the child. What we believe is the parents are making vows for their faith, the faith in which they will raise this child. That's the part they have control over. So those are their vows. Then we move into the vows themselves. There are three elements to it. So now I'm in the middle of page on page 50. The first one, um, for some people, this feels like very normal language. For other people, this feels pretty spooky. On behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? United Methodism is a really big tent. And so within the big tent of United Methodism, there are people who believe absolutely in Satan, uh, an entity who works for evil, who is separate from God, who is um, not equal in power to God, but they're kind of two personal beings, God and Satan, and Satan is a personal being very active in our lives. Other United Methodists would say, I don't really believe in a personal Satan, but I do believe there's spiritual evil. I, I do believe that there are forces at work to pull us away from the good, and um, that, that that's not a person like Satan, but that there's, um, they're just aware of a, a pull away from the good. Other people would say, I I wouldn't really call it spiritual evil, but I would say there's sin. There, there's something in the world that we just tend toward the bad, or it's, it's easy to make poor choices. And other people would say, I'm not even so sure about sin, but I know I can make poor choices, and I need not to do that. So wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, no matter where, you know that there are elements in life or forces in life that you don't want to have power over you. So when you say yes to Jesus, you're also saying no to other things. When I baptize a baby, particularly when I baptize a, a child, maybe the third or fourth child in a larger family, and they start seeing what parents are up against, I'll ask them, now you won't say this publicly, but when you think about what you're saying no to, what will be in your mind? And when parents have had several children and they baptize, they can rattle it off. I don't want drugs, I don't want alcohol abuse, I don't want bullying, I don't want materialism, I don't want body image problems, and they just, they go through the list. I don't want racism, I know all that stuff's out there, uh-uh, I don't want any of that to have power over my child. Um, we may continue to have those concerns in our adult lives when an adult comes for baptism. Sometimes they're thinking of things that are more subtle. They may still struggle with addiction issues or finding themselves pulled by um, negative social groups. But often what older adults or you know, middle-aged and on adults are thinking about is a little more subtle. They are aware of the pull of pride or they're aware of the temptation of sexuality that's not in respectful forms, or they're aware of the pull toward um, 
just wanting to be liked and the way that they may not be faithful to God the way they need to be because of their desire to be liked or to get approval. Or maybe their, their big temptation is greed. They just want more and more and more stuff and more money and for some it's prestige. But whatever that is, it's worth our reflecting on what are my temptations? What are, what are the elements that I know I'm vulnerable to? Other things I'm not vulnerable to, but what for me would I be saying no to? Then we go on to the next question, which sounds like the first, but it's a little bit different. The second question is, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? As I said, it sounds like it's a repeat of the first, but it's not. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you? If you think of the first question as being, do you say no? The second question is, will you keep saying no? And will you let God work within you to be able to keep saying no? I don't know about you guys, but there's certain things that in that moment I could say, oh yeah, I'm not going to fall for that. But an hour later or a day later or a week later, I'm falling for that. <laughs> you know, we can have that moment, we really mean it, but that moment alone isn't enough. I need the freedom in Christ to be able to keep resisting. I need the power of God. I need prayer. When I find myself getting vulnerable to whatever are my touch points that would pull me away from Christ, I need God's freedom and power to help me keep resisting. Most of us just can't do it on our own. We'll talk with parents of young children, and they'll talk about how much they need patience. And some young parents will talk about how they've never prayed as much as they've prayed with their colicky child or, or you know, whatever the situation is, that you just, I can't do this on my own. Thank you. Uh, so that second one is the question about, Will you keep saying no? Will you let God work in you to keep saying no? And then finally, the yes. Yes, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Put your whole trust in his grace. Promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ is open to people of all ages, nations, and races. Do you choose Jesus to be the one who saves you? You recognize the salvation you experience in him. Do you choose him as your Lord, meaning he's your touchstone? Christ is the one to whom you pray, is the model for life. Uh, what you see of Jesus' life in the Gospels is how you want your life to be directed. Is that what you are saying yes to? And in addition, will you do that in the context of the church? There's a lot of individualism in American culture right now but really, we know that there's no such thing as a solo Christian. Christians are part of the body. We live out that faith in the context of the body. And in that body, we teach one another, we celebrate together, we grieve together. In that body, we learn from one another, and we live out our faith. You don't do it alone. Christianity just isn't a solo act. And so when we say we're following Christ, we do it in union with the church, and the church isn't just who I would choose, it's everyone, all ages, all nations, all races. That's the body of Christ in all of its diversity and its beauty. As we continue on in the liturgy, you'll see that we affirm the Apostles' Creed. We go on to the Thanksgiving over the water, and that is a really beautiful passage about different ways that God has saved the people through water. And then we go through and are reminded of our baptism with a final closing grace. 
My prayer for you is that you will come to have a greater sense of your own baptism. And if you've not been baptized, please feel free to talk to Scott or to me about being baptized. But what it means to be baptized, to have been chosen and claimed by God, to be given spiritual gifts, to be called to be partners with God in this ongoing act of salvation history in which God moves within and through us and beyond us for the wholeness of the world. Your baptism can't be taken away from you. It is a precious gift given through God's grace, which is the best news of all, offered to us without price. May we celebrate our baptism and feel that wholeness. Amen.